Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. To the utmost. It must be owned that, if an interest displayed in his success could have bribed the disinherited knight, the part of the lists before which he paused had merited his predilection. Cedric the Saxon, overjoyed at the discomfiture of the Templar, and still more so at the miscarriage of his two malevolent neighbours, Frontebeuf and Malvoisin, had, with his body half-stretched over the balcony, accompanied the victor in each course, not with his eyes only, but with his whole heart and soul. The Lady Rowena had watched the progress of the day with equal attention, though without openly betraying the same intense interest. Even the unmoved Athelstane had shown symptoms of shaking off his apathy, when calling for a huge goblet of muscadine, he quaffed it to the health of the disinherited knight. Another group, stationed under the gallery occupied by the Saxons, had shown no less interest in the fate of the day. "'Father Abraham,' said Isaac of York, when the first course was run betwixt the Templar and the disinherited knight, "'how fiercely that genteel rides! Ah, the good horse that was brought all the long way from Barbary! He takes no more care of him than if he were a wild ass's colt, and the noble armour that was worth so many zecchins to Joseph Perea, the armour of Milan, besides seventy in the hundred of profits, he cares for it as little as if he had found it in the highways. "'If he risks his own person and limbs, father,' said Rebecca, "'in doing such a dreadful battle, he can scarce be expected to spare his horse and armour.' "'Child!' replied Isaac, somewhat heated. Thou knowest not what thou speakest. His neck and limbs are his own, but his horse and armour belong to— Holy Jacob! What was I about to say? Nevertheless, it is a good youth. See, Rebecca? See, he is again about to go up to battle against the Philistine. Pray, child, pray for the safety of the good youth, and of the speedy horse and the rich armour. God of my fathers! he again exclaimed— he hath conquered, and the uncircumcised Philistine hath fallen before his lance, even as Og the king of Bashan, and Sihon king of the Amorites, fell before the sword of our fathers. Surely he shall take their gold and their silver, and their war-horses, and their armour of brass and of steel, for a prey and for a spoil. The same anxiety did the worthy Jew display during every course that was run, seldom failing to hazard a hasty calculation concerning the value of the horse and armour which were forfeited to the champion upon each new success. There had been, therefore, no small interest taken in the success of the disinherited knight by those who occupied the part of the lists before which he now paused. 
whether from indecision or some other motive of hesitation, the champion of the day remained stationary for more than a minute, while the eyes of the silent audience were riveted upon his motions. And then, gradually and gracefully sinking the point of his lance, he deposited the coronet which it supported at the feet of the fair Rowena. The trumpets instantly sounded, while the heralds proclaimed the Lady Rowena the Queen of Beauty and of Love for the ensuing day, menacing with suitable penalties those who should be disobedient to her authority. Then they repeated their cry of largesse, to which Cedric, in the height of his joy, replied by an ample donative, and to which Athelstane, though less promptly, added one equally large. There was some murmuring among the damsels of Norman descent, who were as much unused to see the preference given to a Saxon beauty as the Norman nobles were to sustain defeat in the games of chivalry which they themselves had introduced. But these sounds of disaffection were drowned by the popular shout of, "'Long live the Lady Rowena, the chosen and lawful queen of love and beauty!' To which many in the lower area added, "'Long live the Saxon princess!' Long live the race of the immortal Alfred! However unacceptable these sounds might be to Prince John, and to those around him, he saw himself nevertheless obliged to confirm the nomination of the victor, and accordingly calling to horse, he left his throne and mounted his genet. Accompanied by his train, he again entered the lists. The prince paused a moment beneath the gallery of the Lady Alicia, to whom he paid his compliments, observing at the same time to those around him, "'By my halidom, sirs, if the knight's feats and arms have shown that he hath limbs and sinews, his choice hath no less proved that his eyes are none of the clearest.' It was on this occasion, as during his whole life, John's misfortune not perfectly to understand the characters of those whom he wished to conciliate. Valdemar Fitzurse was rather offended than pleased at the prince stating thus broadly an opinion that his daughter had been slighted. "'I know no right of chivalry,' he said, "'more precious or inalienable than that of each free knight to choose his lady-love by his own judgment. My daughter courts distinction from no one, and in her own character, and in her own sphere, will never fail to receive the full proportion of that which is her due.' Prince John replied not, but, spurring his horse as if to give vent to his vexation, he made the animal bound forward to the gallery where Rowena was seated, with the crown still at her feet. "'Assume,' he said, "'fair lady, the mark of your sovereignty, to which none vows homage more sincerely than ourself, John of Anjou, and if it please you to-day, with your noble sire and friends, to grace our banquet in the castle of Ashby, we shall learn to know the empress to whose service we devote to-morrow. Rowena remained silent, and Cedric answered for her in his native Saxon. The Lady Rowena, he said, possesses not the language in which to reply to your courtesy, or to sustain her part in your festival. I also, and the noble Athelstane of Coningsburg, speak only the language and practice, only the manners of our fathers. We therefore decline with thanks to your highness's courteous invitation to the banquet. To-morrow the Lady Rowena will take upon her the state to which she has been called by the free election of the victor knight, confirmed by the acclamations of the people. 
So saying, he lifted the coronet and placed it upon Rowena's head, in token of her acceptance of the temporary authority assigned to her. "'What says he?' said Prince John, affecting not to understand the Saxon language in which, however, he was well skilled. The purport of Cedric's speech was repeated to him in French. "'It is well,' he said. "'Tomorrow we will ourself conduct this mute sovereign to her seat of dignity.' "'You, at least, Sir Knight,' he added, turning to the victor who had remained near the gallery, "'will this day share our banquet?' The knight, speaking for the first time, in a low and hurried voice, excused himself by pleading fatigue and the necessity of preparing for tomorrow's encounter. "'It is well,' said Prince John haughtily. "'Although unused to such refusals, we will endeavour to digest our banquet as we may.' though ungraced by the most successful in arms and his elected queen of beauty. So saying, he prepared to leave the list with his glittering train, and his turning his steed for that purpose was the signal for the breaking up and dispersion of the spectators. Yet with the vindictive memory proper to offended pride, especially when combined with conscious want of desert, John had hardly proceeded three paces ere again, turning around, he fixed an eye of stern resentment upon the yeoman who had displeased him in the early part of the day, and issued his commands to the men-at-arms who stood near. On your life, suffer not that fellow to escape. The yeoman stood the angry glance of the prince with the same unvaried steadiness which had marked his former disportment, saying with a smile, I have no intention to leave Ashby until the day after to-morrow. I must see how Staffordshire and Leicestershire can draw their bows. The forests of Needwood and Charnwood must rear good archers. I, said Prince John to his attendants, but not in direct reply, I will see how he can draw his own, and woe betide him unless his skill should prove some apology for his insolence. It is full time, said de Bracy, that the outrecidence of these peasants should be restrained by some striking example. Valdemar Fitzurse, who, probably though his patron was not taking the readiest road to popularity, shrugged up his shoulders and was silent. Prince John resumed his retreat from the lists, and the dispersion of the multitude became general. In various routes, according to the different quarters from which they came, and in various groups of various numbers, the spectators were seen retiring over the plain. By far the most numerous part streamed towards the town of Ashby, where many of the distinguished persons were lodged in the castle, and where others found accommodation in the town itself. Among these were most of the knights, who had already appeared in the tournament, or who proposed to fight there the ensuing day, and who, as they rode slowly along, talking over the events of the day, were greeted with loud shouts by the populace. The same acclamations were bestowed upon Prince John, although he was indebted for them rather to the splendour of his appearance and train than the popularity of his character. A more sincere and more general, as well as a better merited acclamation, attended the victor of the day, until, anxious to withdraw himself from popular notice, he accepted the accommodation of one of those pavilions pitched at the extremities of the lists, the use of which was courteously tendered him by the marshals of the field. On his retiring to his tent, many who had lingered in the lists to look upon and form conjectures concerning him 
also dispersed. The signs and sounds of a tumultuous concourse of men, lately crowded together in one place, and agitated by the same passing events, were now exchanged for the distant hum of voices, of different groups retreating in all directions, and these speedily died away in silence. No other sounds were heard save the voices of the menials who stripped the galleries of their cushions and tapestry, in order to put them in safety for the night, and wrangled among themselves for the half-used bottles of wine and relics of the refreshment which had been served round to the spectators. Beyond the precincts of the lists more than one forge was erected, and these now began to glimmer through the twilight, announcing the toil of the armourers, which was to continue through the whole night, in order to repair or alter the suits of armour to be used again on the morrow. A strong guard of men-at-arms, renewed at intervals, from two hours to two hours, surrounded the lists, and kept watch during the night. End of chapter 9